Welcome to Small Pleasures, the podcast that discusses great short stories and greatness in the short story form. My name is Livy Michael and I'm a novelist and short story writer from Manchester, England. And this is Sonia Moore, a short story writer and translator from Paris, France. Bienvenue. This is our 15th podcast and it's an unusual episode because we're talking about the short stories of Albertine Sarazan, which Sonia has translated into English. This is the first time these stories have been translated and the translations will be published as The Crib and Other Stories next year by Confingo. So although I've read and admired the story, Sonia is more of an expert. And in this episode, I will be interviewing her and asking her questions about her work. So, Sonia, can you tell us a little about Albertine Sarazan? But it's hard to tell just a little. Her life story is so rich, it provided enough material, not just for one novel, but for three. As well as being a novelist, Albertine was a poet, letter writer and short fiction writer. So she was born a foundling in Algiers in 1937 and was named Albertine Damien. Her origins are uncertain, and it's probable that she was at least partly North African, perhaps Algerian Jewish by descent. As an infant, she was adopted by a relatively elderly Catholic couple and renamed Amarie R. and they later revoked the adoption, so I give only the initial of their family name. Albertine spent the first 10 years of her life in French colonial Algeria, before her then adoptive family moved to Aix-en-Provence in the south of France. Her home life was difficult. She was raped at the age of 10. She became increasingly disruptive, and her parents don't seem to have known how to respond other than by ever-increasing discipline. At her father's initiative, she was incarcerated, aged 15, in a prison school. And there she was renamed, as was the custom when another inmate had the same name, and became known as Anique. She escaped, ran away to Paris. She survived through theft and prostitution, and with a fellow runaway and girlfriend, committed an armed holdup in a clothes shop. She was imprisoned once again, escaped once again, this time leaping down a 10-metre wall. With a broken ankle, she crawled to the highway and was picked up by a petty criminal who would become the love of her life. So his name was Julien Sarrazin. Both Albertine and Julien spent much of their lives behind bars. For Albertine, writing was central to her life from a very young age. Much of what she wrote in prison was confiscated, but a prison psychologist befriended her and encouraged her. And in the course of her life, Albertine met with several such good angels who formed a small network of love and support around her. Eventually, she came to fame in 1965 with the simultaneous publication of two novels, L'Astragal and La Cavale, published in American English as Astragal and The Runaway, translated respectively by Patsy Southgate and Charles Lamb Markman. In 1966, she published a third novel, La Traversière, which was written in just a few weeks. After a stretch of bad health and exhaustion and a series of operations, she died in 1967 from medical malpractice, aged just 29. She'd spent about eight years of her life in prison and left an astonishing literary legacy, both in terms of quality and quantity. Wow, with such a dramatic life, it's easy to be distracted from the work itself, which is a problem that's cropped up before with other authors we've discussed. But we do want to focus on her literary talent. So can you tell us, how did this translation project come about? As you know, bookshops, I'm always looking for single-authored short story collections. Um, bookshops tend not to cater for people looking specifically for these, so it's like trying to find mushrooms in a forest. And on this one occasion, after the hard lockdown in Paris, I got lucky. 
I stumbled upon this little blue book of short stories propped up at one end of the shelf, an exquisitely produced work titled Nouvelle de Prison, published by Les Editions du Chemin de Fer. When I opened the book and started reading, I was thrilled by this unique voice. I'd never read anything like it. So I bought the book, and because of the voice, I wanted to know how the prose had been translated, but I couldn't find a translation anywhere. And I felt that it just had to exist. So that set me off on a little adventure trying to make that happen. It's wonderful that you came across it in this way, almost by chance, and it set you off on such a journey. We've often said that it's very important to have a culture of translation around the short story in particular, which is in essence an international form. And the UK used to be bad at this, but happily there are now more publishers who publish translated work, often independent, such as Fitzcarraldo, Comma Press, and of course Confingo. We've looked at some other work in translation, notably Anna Sagers, but translation isn't always straightforward, is it? What kind of difficulties or complications did you encounter while translating the work? What about the kinds of choices you made? I loved being introduced to Anna Sagers, so that was thanks to you. It's a wonderful discovery, for which I'm hugely grateful. I can think it also has a special place in my heart as it published the first English translation of Pharisite by Vincent de Swart, translated by Nicholas Royal. It's a very singular novel that's delightfully short story-ish. So to answer your question for Albertine's stories, the challenge I was most aware of from the start was voice. Uh, Albertine describes it as a mélange de calligraphie et de gribouillis, d'argot et de marie-chantal, d'ordure et de poème. So a mashup of scribbles and calligraphy, well-to-do French and street slang, gutter filth and poetry. Albertine's identity defies categories, and she made something of a sport of messing with codes, making for many possible readings. She mixes languages such as Latin, English and Spanish with French, no Italic. And she loved complex multi-level puns. She was keen on crosswords. Uh, so there was lots to puzzle over. I didn't tackle voice head on, but rather tried to first broaden and deepen my appreciation, partly through insights shared by others. So I worked first with francophones who shared impressions through deep reads of the text in French. And each person brought insights. And I was reminded how translation carries text across both space and time. So older people recognize certain words of uh, vintage gangster slang that were entirely new to young readers, for example. Younger readers were able to say what spoke to them and what they felt might be shocking or misunderstood. I worked then with bilinguals to challenge the translation. Uh, one person in particular, a sociology and criminology master's graduate, who also helped hugely with wider reading of works like Goffman's cool, uh, Dictionaries of Prison Slang. And lastly, I worked with Anglophones who challenged the translation in terms of whether or not it worked for them in English or how it worked for them in English. In terms of choices, I was often conscious of working against my own biases and those of others. Albertine's writing is visual, but sound is extremely important. She was a trained musician, a poet. She loved rhythm and rhyme. She makes very heavy use of onomatopoeia. And I understand that sound is also especially important in a prison environment where view is controlled and limited. So I tried to work with awareness of visual bias. I was conscious too of the drive to conventionalize Visually, Albertine's prose is outlandish. She makes and breaks her own rules of punctuation. She does everything you're told not to do at school, for example, using significant capitalization, demoting officers by stripping them of caps, or using all caps for emphasis. She delivers big, unbroken slabs of text with almost no white space, as if writing from prison, cramming as much as possible into limited time and space. Even after I made the choice to respect this, I had to keep pushing back against the drive to tidy up. 
It helped to bear in mind that the stories were first published by Edition Sarrazin, set up by Julien to preserve his wife's memory, which implies faithfulness to the original. Throughout the charity since 2017, I've also had the pleasure of sharing letters and poems by people on death row in the USA. And the thought of how unique and vibrant these voices are also guided my choices, because when reading their work, I don't want to correct, but only to appreciate. And I also push back against anglophones who I felt were projecting their biases, for example, demanding more American word choices or a voice that sounded rougher because that better fitted their idea of criminal. One thing I did have to think hard about was instances of racist and anti-Semitic language in the stories. My first instinct was to delete, but after much discussion, those terms were translated and not redacted. And I do think that they're essential to understanding Albertine and her work. Her origins were both obvious and suppressed. She often refers to her exotic looks, and her looks are repeatedly referenced in penal documentation in a way that's not neutral. She was aware of her difference, but unable to escape it, and also unable to assume it. And in this context, her remarks seem important as a reflection of her time, her place, her very particular circumstances. And the terms mark aspects of self made hateful and inaccessible to her. Yes, and I think also there's a sense of a split subjectivity or divided self, or at least a sense of her standing a little apart from the created self of the story, as if saying, here I am playing this role now. There's a very particular kind of self-awareness in such quotes as, I'm the maid of all work, not at all big-mouthed or bullshit. At the same time, she says she wouldn't let herself get like these women, speaking of a particular type of prisoner. Also in Journey to Tunis, she says she's not author, not jailbird, not anything but alive. She's undergone many changes in her life in position and status, and she always seems aware of herself being slotted into roles defined by society or other people. This is particularly evident, I think, in the two short stories you've chosen for discussion. Can you tell us why you chose these two short stories in particular for this podcast? I love your point about her apparent knowingness that she was performing and this split subjectivity. So the stories The Crib and Journey to Tunis relate in different and complementary ways to the themes of space and time that we were exploring at the ENSFR conference in Manchester. The Crib was written shortly after the first draft of the novel The Runaway, or La Cavale. The story is set in prison. Albertine's protagonist is inside the little world of her cell, and she creates an even smaller but also much bigger world by creating a crib. That's a British-English word for a representation of the nativity or birth of Jesus. The cribs are traditional at Christmas time in French Catholic families, notably in the south of France, where they can be elaborate, becoming whole towns in miniature. So her crafting is ostensibly quite a pious, blameless activity, but there's also incredible hubris there. The narrator jokes about how she is creating the world in less than seven days. It's a reference to the biblical account of God's creation of the world. So she's jokingly measuring herself against God, and she creates baby Jesus according to her personal vision, rejecting the example of grand master painters, all the while chatting very intimately with her own representation of the Holy Virgin Mary. And at one point, the Holy Family is very respectfully, as she puts it, impaled by the narrator's hand to fix them in place. At the same time as the narrator is crafting her crib, she's subject to a ticking clock because it will soon be lights out in the prison. So there's a sense of urgency and constraint. The narrator responds by imposing her own even stricter limits, reclaiming agency. It's quite a pertinent technique for a short story where creative limits also help create a space for something to happen. 
and she refuses to use the art supplies she's acquired over the months of her incarceration, using only improvised materials. The story ends on a polyphonic note, a sort of simultaneous collapse and expansion. The narrator sighs into the darkness, so there's forbearance, and there's this exaltation too at the beauty she's created. At the same time, she's already anticipating the grim reality of the Christmas to come, the first unlock, being chivied into line. She references the cribless Christmas that she can expect. But we know she's already subverted this, creating for herself and the other inmates and officers the very crib that the prison system would deny. So there's surrender, endurance, and defiant and jubilant escape. The Journey to Tunis is a semi-journalistic piece written after Albertine found international success and after she won the Prix des Quatre Jury in 1966. I have the good fortune of having a recording of this work, so I was able to hear Albertine's voice in a very literal way in relation to this work. A part of her prize was a trip to Tunisia, and she recounts this with ironic humour, but also with great charm and lyricism. Suddenly she's in these elevated spheres, mixing with the literati, taking an airplane for the first time, seeing wonders that delight her, receiving flowers. It's a very different world from the crib, but in some respects it's the same because of her particular view. Her eye for beauty, for example, is just as keen, and her almost spiritual thirst for something bigger and beyond is still present. Having been enclosed in a little world in the crib, in Journey to Tunis, Albertine gets to see the world itself made small by her flight. As she experiences time moving differently, becomes acutely aware of how fleeting everything is, but she still carries the prison with her, so a luxury coach becomes a sweatbox seen through her eyes. This is partly performative, no doubt, in line with her marketing persona, but it's also something that she can't shake even when she tries. She makes a point of stating that her difficulty to get a passport related only to time constraints, for example, not her criminal past. At one point she projects to a future dream home for her and Julien, an old place with a view which they'll restore. They moved into their home in 1967, Albertine wrote while admiring the view, and there was a spot that so pleased her that she told Julien that she'd like that to be her final resting place. And after her untimely death, Julien granted that wish. That's so moving. And these are really important points about how she alters time and space in her writing. You made a comparison once to the work of Lucia Berlin. Would you like to say a little more about that? I must mention Nina Ellis here, Lucia Berlin's biographer, who we had the huge pleasure of interviewing for a Small Pleasures podcast and who made a thrilling contribution to the ENSFR conference in Lisbon in 2022. Nina's expert insights really helped deepen my appreciation of Lucia Berlin's work, but also to see parallels with the work of Albertine Sarrazin. Both writers are contemporary, both have rather tricky identities that don't sit neatly within regular geographical, cultural or class boundaries. Both went off the rails, and both wrote as if their lives depended on it. In particular, both drew very directly on their lives to create narratives that blur the boundaries between life and art, and this with great artistry. Berlin actually writes about Albertine. She walked in Albertine's footsteps in France, so there's a direct literary connection too. Berlin is one of the authors I was referring to earlier, where there is a temptation to allow her extraordinary life to dominate and to read her work as autofiction rather than thinking of her literary merit. Certainly. That's, that's a really important point. It's almost impossible to decouple Albertine's writing from the life she lived. As you point out in Journey to Tunis, Albertine talks of not being quite sure what's her and what's not. 
Um, oddly, I think there's also a risk of deifying Albertine, turning her into a hero in ways that she wasn't. I often come across references to her as a child prodigy, for example. She received a privileged but patchy education, and her school results were sometimes excellent, but very uneven, as one might expect. She was talented, but no child genius. There seems to be a temptation to present the artist as genius. This is an old tradition in Western Europe. I think of Vasari and his lives with the artists. Albertine's writing is surely legacy enough. She should be allowed to be human. Yes, that's true. And in the end, I think it does the writer a disservice, as if by saying she was a genius, that accounts for everything rather than giving credit for the human struggle. But one of the questions that occurred to me when I was reading was, who do you think she's addressing? Because I think this question is relevant to her very distinctive voice. Great question. It's hard to know, isn't it? Albertine wrote even when in the segregation block, composing by committing to memory. To be able to split the self into both writer and reader is a big deal for someone incarcerated. You become company for yourself. Julien described Albertine's letters as an exercise in style. So even when writing to someone, there was perhaps an element of writing for herself or her craft. And then any text implies imaginary readers, access to other people despite the prison walls. At the same time, Albertine's texts can seem quite exclusive and coded. The language switching, slang, classical references, etc. can make it feel like an in-language, which it was to some extent. Language switching helped Fox censors, for example. In her work, names shift, pronouns slip, free and direct passages slide from one head to another. So you need some level of intimacy to know who or what is being talked about. We see this in Journey to Tunis, where the narrator adopts a la-di-da voice, performing herself as a prize-winning writer. Often the narrator of Albertine's story slips into a very sudden nous or us, mirroring the fusional relationship that Albertine shared in real life with Julien. So being in on all this, readers often feel Albertine speaking to them very directly, an intimate, almost personal address. One of the parallels I would make is to the work of working class writers of the 19th and early 20th centuries, whom I studied for my PhD, and who were consciously writing to a readership outside their own class, and therefore self-consciously creating a literary identity and voice. Sarazan's own peers, the other women in prison, often can't read, as she says herself. So even in the act of writing, she's constructing a separate self based on difference or difference to use the French term. I would describe her voice as acute and knowing, unsentimental and not particularly introspective, given all the hours she spent locked up, which must have given her time to think. And there's also a wide range of registers, which I think you mentioned before in her language, from the formal to the colloquial, sometimes of the street, sometimes very literary. How would you explain this? A great parallel. It's true that Albertine's companions were sometimes illiterate, but it's true, too, that some were highly educated, often self-educated, and much more so than the officers guarding them, which makes for very uneasy dynamics. It's strange to see barely literate censor notes on Albertine's letters trying to suppress exchanges of poetry. Mm. Um, as the inmate Dufour points out in another of Albertine's stories, Bibiche, intellectuals drive them mad because there's something beyond their reach and hard to control. To answer your question, the easy answer would be that this range of registers in Albertine's work is who she was, a private school educated bourgeoise who ended up on the streets. 
but there's an element of self-creation or invention there too, I suspect. She very much admired Rimbaud as a girl, that romance of poetry and crime. She was contemporary with a lot of upheavals in French society, and they too surface in this mix of registers. It's the arrival of jazz, for example, which enchanted her, but was considered dangerous in some circles. And her short story, Bibiche, reflects both positionings, cutting-edge street adoption and establishment rejection. There was a nascent consumer boom, the Trente Glorieuse, the invention of the teenager with lots of influence from the States. Again, in Bibiche, there's a character who prefigures uh, yé-yé attitudes. So that's attitudes of French teenagers very influenced by the US and UK. We also know that Albertine was influenced by film and fiction, especially French gangster films and série noire books. After the holdup, Albertine's books were taken as evidence. There was a lot of panic in the press at that time about delinquent teenagers. Albertine understood the shock value of her crime. At her trial, she was deliberately provocative, playing the crim. What she doesn't seem to have known how to express is that she was a kid desperately in need of care. Sometimes her writing seems like a rather more sophisticated version of this crim role-playing. In Bibi, she almost seems to be looking back at her younger self, knowingly aware of this rather forced positioning. I still think there's something different about writing for a readership you assume has no prison experience from writing to your companions inside. I think it has something to do with how you construct yourself and your authority to describe a world the reader might not know. But all these points are excellent reasons why we shouldn't just consider the work to be just autofiction, although it's tempting to read it that way, isn't it? To what extent do you think the main characters in these stories are actually Albertine, even when given a different name? That's such an interesting question, and one I find impossible to answer. It's clear that she drew very directly from life experiences, but the crafting involved was phenomenal. Years and years and years of writing and revisions, very radical cuts. One third of one novel was slashed, then further reworked. After the success of La Cavale and La Stregage, she tried a new voice, a classical French, no slang, third person, not first. It was directly rejected by her publisher. She was devastated and destroyed the manuscript. So for her third novel, she adopted the voice she'd become famous for. And I can't help wondering about that other voice, whether it related to parts of self, if only a potential creative self, that was pruned out of existence before it had a chance to go anywhere. With Albertine, there's always a sense of not just the blurred line between life and art, but also external limitations imposed on the self and how we negotiate that. Yes, and some of these external limitations come very directly from the fact that she's writing from prison. What do we learn about prison life from her stories? But Sarazin plunges the reader very directly into a penal environment. I think her writing also highlights, though, that there's no such thing as prison life, rather there are prison lives. In some ways, the extreme conditions work like a prism, revealing the diversity of people and even the diversity of resources within the self, as we see in the crib. Or the exact opposite, Albertine presents this brutal truth, too, that prison can break you. She was always very determined not to be broken, and writing was part of that. Yes, but she doesn't emphasise the brutality. In Bibiche, the voice of authority adopts a kindly attitude to the young girl. I think, if anything, she emphasises the monotony and the necessity of fitting in. It's true that we don't see forced strip searches or anything like that, but perhaps the monotony and the need to fit in are one form of brutality in this environment, which is designed to enforce compliance. In the story you mentioned, Bibiche, a minor character is slipped in a couple of times as a foil for the eponymous Bibiche. So we get to compare this young girl who's just been received into prison and an old woman broken by the system because she didn't know how to survive. 
the, the danger is made real but subtly yes that's a very nuanced form of realism and do you think this affects the structure of her stories for structure the stories can seem freewheeling great run-on sentences a chatty tone lots of apparent asides it's said that Albertine wrote fast and unrepentant, but she recrafted the runaway several times and, like Berlin, used letter writing as a sort of literary playground or gym, perfecting lines that she later take out and use elsewhere. Writing to Julien, she uses words very similar to the ending of Journey to Tunis. Her stories contain occasional errors. In the crib, there's a little inconsistency about the start, so maybe they didn't get as much editing as she might have invested if she'd lived to see them published. But they're very finely crafted. Her seeding is superb, very subtle. She scatters Chekhov's guns so blithely they seem like random details till they go off. I love her exploration of voice too, which is brilliantly daring. I should say voice is plural because she plays with several while also maintaining her own signature voice. That's true. And she makes various points about creativity too, doesn't she? She seems to be exploring it as a form of escape or a different space. I see this too, that creation is a means of resistance. There's an excellent essay called Poems in Prison by Irina Dumitrescu that explores poetry, language and learning as a means of resistance in prison. Her focus is on Romanian political prisoners. It would be naive to say that it's enough to do a drawing or write a poem to escape the reality of prison walls. And as part of my research, I read the letters of Gabrielle Russier, a contemporary of Albertine's, a young teacher who had an affair with a pupil and was incarcerated as a result. Her letters show a woman being destroyed, absolutely crushed by the end to the point where language fails her. Whereas Albertine's writings are full of verve and fright and delight, the writing was sword and salvation. She said that in prison her beak was her gun. Her beak is a, a brand of, well, I guess biro would be the equivalent in English. I visited the prison from which she escaped by jumping that wall and there was an artistic homage in one of the cells. Amazing. So it was amazing. Site visits really helped inform the translation. So the walls of this cell are papered with Albertine's words and looking through the Judas hole, you could see an image of her looking back and in an environment that sought to make her a docile, numbered inmate. Writing enabled her to not just retain some sense of self, but also to project this subjectivity to the world beyond. In the crib in particular, she's fashioning an artwork from materials she also used to try to escape and creating a parallel between art and escape, I think. But also it made me think of how a writer's voice creates an alternative space in which the writer can move more freely, perhaps, than her social circumstances allow. Absolutely. Great insight. Language gives her this power. For Albertine, language enabled her to create an alternative space while inside prison, as you point out. But writing also enabled her to gain a place in society after she'd done her time. Yes, and the language is more lyrical in Journey to Tunis. Totally. There's a snippet on the recording where she explains that she sat really comfortably with her drink and her fags. And her biographer says she's speaking to Julien in this moment, but it feels like she's addressing the listener, inviting them to share in a relaxed chat. There's definitely a sense that she's turned a corner and can breathe more easily, be more herself or more easily herself. It's a beautiful loop back to that flight from prison off a 10 meter wall. In Journey to Tunis, there's a sense that she's taken off both literally in a plane and metaphorically. 
so much so that she can even envisage getting her own space, a huge big deal for someone who's had such limited control, even over the space that is their own body. The one thing that hit me when I visited one of her old prisons was that the locks were on the outside of the doors in the sanitation block. And I understood better how even in their most private moments, the people in prison have no privacy, so little agency. And all this is described without sentiment or cliché. True, and yet it's full of feeling and ironic humour too, very often, but also human feeling and understanding, not without judgment. There is also the sense of her writing against silencing, her voice as resistance. There's silencing from the censor, of course, and actually you mentioned the publisher also, but there are other silences. Her work is not particularly introspective, for instance, and she's very eloquent about her life in prison, but there's almost no mention of the dramas that led her there, so you almost have to read between the lines. I love this idea of reading silences. It's true that talk of dramas doesn't come through in her short stories. She does address this in other writings, her journals, letters, novels, sometimes with humour to deflect or play down the worst, with regard to her very degraded health toward the end of her life, for example. I think it's true, though, that she tended to aspire to heady heights, a sort of spiritual realisation of self rather than a psychological mining of the self, perhaps because of her religious upbringing. Very young, she makes heavy use of the word grisé, which appears a lot in her later writings. It can mean intoxicate, but if Evokes that kind of heady feeling you get from from alcohol, but also a very intense moment, a song, a poem. She also seems to have had a particular appreciation of moments that she qualifies as euphoric. So even though she's often writing from behind bars, there's this wonderful soaring quality to her work. That is a great note to end on. So we hope you've enjoyed this podcast and we've sparked your interest in this remarkable writer, Albertine Sarazan, whose work, translated by Sonia Moore, will be available next year from Confingo. We hope you've enjoyed this and that you tune in again. We've got lots of other great writers to discuss. But for now, it's goodbye from me, Libby Michael, and from Sonia. Bye, très bientôt.